Well, for the second week in a row, I am not Aaron. He is still with the Guatemala team, but I'm excited to get to be with you guys for another week as we continue to uh, go through the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 9 this morning. Uh, you guys can thank Tina Lethenstrom. She notified me in the first service that uh, I should try to keep it under an hour because apparently my message last week was a little bit long. Uh, I said, what was the Lord's Supper? She said, not that part. Uh, no, she said it was, she, she was very complimentary, but she told me to try to keep it under an hour. So I'm going to do that for you guys. Uh, but we have a lot to study. Uh, I'm excited because of the way that we get to teach this. Because the truth of the matter is that what we've been reading and studying through is a letter. It's a letter from Paul to the church at Corinth. And even though we're going to pick up in a new chapter today, we, we haven't changed letters. And I want to encourage you to think about it that way. Because you, you wouldn't pick up a letter that somebody wrote you, you wouldn't open it in the mail, if anybody does that anymore, or open an email, and just start in the middle, right? And read and just assume you know everything that is happening around it and exactly what they want to say to you. You, you read what's before it. You read what's after that. And the whole of that makes up the letter. Likewise, you wouldn't pick up a letter in a, in a bookstore or in a thrift shop that was written from one person to another person and just read a sentence out of the middle of it and, and think you understand the contents of that letter. And so everything that we talk about this morning has everything to do with what we talked about last week. On the surface, it might not seem like it, but I want to encourage you to hold on to that thought because it's the truth. And it, you're going to see it come together in the end. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 15 this morning. So would you read along with me? Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. For is it oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. But I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Let's pray together this morning before we 
dive into this word. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth that we know that we find there, truth that doesn't change over the centuries, over the millennia, truth that's just as applicable today as when it was written. Lord, would you open our eyes to see what lies in this text and open our ears, God, to hear from you and open our hearts, Lord, to be changed and to be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus, Lord, that we might praise you and bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, so if at first glance, uh, we're starting to see what's happening here. This is a passage that uh, at least the first portion of it is, seems to be about the, the wages, the pay, the sustaining that ought to come from God's people for the leaders in the church. And can I say to you that I'm glad that I serve one in a church that, that cares for his leaders, but more than that, as I prepared for this text, I'm glad I serve in a church that preaches in an expositional way that preaches through the Bible, that looks at the text as it is and exegetes the meaning that God has for us. Because I would, I would hate to preach this passage. That's really been my thought all week. I would hate to preach this passage by itself and to just stand up here and preach a passage about how you ought to pay and care for the leaders in your church as a person who feels like this church does that well. But even as I look at this, as an issue, I recognize that God has given us wisdom in how we ought to do this. And many of you guys are going to go on to maybe be members in our church plants, maybe be members in other churches as you move, as God leads and directs your life. And so even as I think this is a church that does that well, I think we have an opportunity to look at what the Bible says about this issue and come to a right understanding. Because if, as we think about the church as a whole, as we think about all the Christian denominations, there's some wide varying views on how we ought to care for the leaders in our church, what, what rights they ought to have, how we ought to expect them to live or not to live. Uh, and so Paul deals with these issues, and I think it's a great opportunity for us to dig in and to understand that well. That's not going to stop me from stopping periodically and being really clear that this is not me telling you how you ought to pay me, but it's me telling you what the Word of God says. And Paul starts this, this passage with a series of questions. That's really, we're going to get to that before we get to my first point, because he, he starts out with these questions where the answer to the questions is, is obvious. It, it's, these, are not, these are not questions asked for deep contemplation. These are questions asked because the answer to them is so clear. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Now, that might be one where we might would stir up a little debate in our day and age now, because we have some, we've read through the whole of scripture, we maybe have some differing ideas on what it means to be an apostle, but this word that Paul is using here just, just means, an, it means an emissary. It means somebody who comes on behalf of somebody else, specifically in the Bible, in the context of someone who was sent on behalf of Christ with a message. And so he says, am I not an apostle? Have I not come to you with this message from Christ? Now, some people would say that an apostle is the first person that comes to a group of people with that message. He goes to somewhere that's never been before and takes that message of the gospel. And again, Paul can say to the church in Corinth, am I not an apostle? Was I not the one that brought you this message 
of who Jesus is? Have I not seen Jesus myself? Right? And, and then he goes, even if some people would say that I'm not an apostle, certainly I am to you because what? You're, you're the evidence of the fact. The fact that you all in Corinth have believed this message that I have brought is evidence that I am an apostle. And so he establishes this, this grounds where he's going to lay the rest of his argument about how the church ought to think about those who are in leadership by establishing the fact that he is the one that's brought them this message. And maybe there's leaders that are serving there now and teaching them, but he's the one that's brought them this message and he has the authority to speak on these issues. And so as we get into the rest of this text, let's take a look at what Paul has to say about his rights as an apostle and likewise by extension of the rights of those who minister in the church. He says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. And his, his first thought there is, do we not have the right to eat and drink? And I told you that these questions are, you know, they're, they're kind of self-evident what the response is. The answer is yes, we have the right to eat and drink. And I know that this, this seems like very plain, but I want you to think about what that means. There is not an expectation for some reason that those that hold a church office are expected to starve, to, to entirely never consume anything. That would be a very short-lived ministry. Clearly, I'm not starving, although I do have the right to eat and drink, and I, there's several restaurants in the area I like, so if you guys enjoy this message, you want to take me to lunch, that's fine too. No, I'm just kidding. But we have the right to eat and drink, right? And this is where some, this is where some places get it wrong, maybe not to the extent of starvation, but, they, but, but some of our churches, some of our denominations expect that their elders and pastors would live like paupers, that they would be just totally penniless and destitute and not be able to care for the basic needs of their life. And Paul says, no, we, we, just like you, have the right to eat and drink. He just finished in the previous passage in chapter 8, laying out that they could eat and drink anything, right? That, that this issue of meat sacrificed to idols is not one that the Bible restricts us or that God has restricted us from doing. If anything, maybe we should restrict ourselves, but it's not a restriction that is placed on us. So we have the right to eat and drink. We, as leaders and elders in the church, also have a right to be married. Now, we don't have a guarantee to be married. Nobody has that. Aaron dealt with that uh, several weeks ago in, in chapter 6 and 7 as we read through these things and we talked about what it means to be married and what it means to be single and the blessings and gifts that are found in both of those things. So that we, we understand biblically there's not a command to be married, right? There, there is an opportunity to minister in our singleness, but there is at least a chance for us, just like any of you, to be married. And maybe I would say even an expectation that some of us might be married if we look at Titus 1 or if we look at 1 Timothy 3 as we get the criteria for an elder or an overseer. Those things start with, he, he should be the husband of one wife. Well, there's at least, again, maybe not an expectation that we have to marry, but an, uh, the idea that we would be. And also, those passages tell us that his children, again, maybe an expectation that we likely would have children, should be well-disciplined, right? They should be believers. And so, if we have the right to be married, 
there are other things that come with that, right? There are burdens that come with that. Aaron spent a good long while as we unpacked marriage talking about those things, right? If you have a wife and you have a family, there's certainly some obligation to, to care for that wife and family, to provide for that wife and family. In fact, 1 Timothy 5, verse 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if we have the right to be married, again, not an obligation, but a right, and we take a wife, then there's a need to provide for that wife and that family that we have. So we have a right to be married as leaders and elders in the church. We have a right uh, to eat and to drink. But we also have the right to the, the freedoms that everybody else in Christ has. And if there was a spot in here that I thought maybe in this room or in any given room, there might be some people that were like, oh, I don't, I don't, that seems different than what I thought growing up or maybe it seems different than what I've believed, uh, this, would be, this would be it. But we have the right to the freedoms that other believers are afforded. That's what he says. Am I not free? I'm just as free as you are free. I have just as much liberty in Christ as you have liberty. Now, does the Bible say some things about how I ought to conduct myself? Certainly, right? Does the, does the Bible give us information about what the qualifications for a pastor and an elder are? Certainly. I mean, it tells us several things. One, in James chapter 3, verse 1, it tells us, it reminds us just about the burden of teaching, period, for anybody that would teach, right? James says, not many of you should teach because you will be judged with a stricter judgment. There is a heavy burden that falls on those who teach. And then, of course, what we just talked about uh, that we get in Titus and in 1 Timothy, in Titus chapter 1, we get, we get the instructions from Paul, and it very much matches what happens in 1 Timothy chapter 3 about, uh, about pastors and elders. If you want to look at it with me, I think let's take a look together because this helps answer the question. So Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. What is that? Well, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes on to give direction on what that should be like. He says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, we talked about that, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that it may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I don't know about you guys. If you read that along with me, I see some, some absolute qualifications, some things that are requirements of the character of a man that would be an elder or an overseer, but I don't see any restrictions on freedoms. I, I don't see a, well, he should be penniless. He should not eat or drink. He definitely can't smile. He probably shouldn't have a roof over his head. None of that is there. There are no restrictions to the freedoms that you enjoy as a believer in Christ listed in that passage. There are absolutely some elements 
of that man's character that are listed, but really and truly, when we look at that character as it's listed, it's not any different than the character that every one of us should have as a follower of Christ. It's just lived out and exemplified in a way that, to the point of the passage, is above reproach. And so I think it's clear that we have the right to eat and drink, we have the right to be married, and we have the same rights as elders and leaders in the church to the freedoms that each and every one of you guys are afforded in Christ. So Paul is laying this argument out here about the rights that that he has, and then he goes on to say, right there, let's see, in in verse 6, he says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And I want you guys to see, when he says that Barnabas and I don't have a right to refrain from working for a living, what he means is that we have to work because we're not being paid for the work that we're doing on behalf of the church. And so the, the last point I want you to see there is that we, we do. We do as leaders and, and elders in the church and overseers have the right to be paid for the work that we do so that we can dedicate ourselves to the work that we do on behalf of God and on behalf of his church and really ultimately on, on behalf of you guys, right? I, I just want you to think for a second. And again, as much as this is not about how Hepsiva deals with its church and its staff, I want you to think about the people that work here. I want you to think about Aaron, and I want you to think about Blake, and I want you to think about Kevin and all the rest of the staff that we have here. And I want you to ask yourselves, have, have they not ministered to you? Have they not taught you faithfully in a way that uh, you could learn and understand the Word of God? Have they not been there to pray for you? Have they not been there to encourage you or to visit you? For some of you guys, were they not the person that shared the gospel with you? Were they not the person that baptized you? And if they've done all of those things for you, does that not, does that not have value? I, I think it does. And, and, and our leaders, as I look at them, they dedicate themselves in a way that shows diligence to building up this life and the work of God so that they are able to be the best servant that they possibly can to each and every one of you. So what Paul would say is, does that not, does that not deserve to be paid? And the obvious answer is, uh, of course it does. Of course somebody who dedicates their life to, to serving others and to building a skill set that allows them to do that in a way that's faithful ought to be compensated for that. I, I think it's an obvious answer. And so Paul says that the rights that he has, and I've said, those rights convey to those who minister the gospel. He says these are the rights. But then we go on to say that these are all rights that we can relate to. That's the second point I want you to see. And he goes on to give some examples. Let's look at the examples that he gives. He says... After he says, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? I want you to, let's just think about this question, right? Soldiers have the right to be paid, right? We wouldn't expect that if we were going to send a soldier to the other side of the world, one, they'd be working another job that they have to take off from. Then we would be like, 
well, could you book your own plane ticket because we're not gonna we're not gonna pick that up. And when you get there, will you just reserve a hotel for yourself? And by the way, can you find another job while you're wherever you're gonna be at so that you can eat and survive? And then also, would you come and just do whatever mission we have for you? We wouldn't do that. It doesn't make sense. And even in Paul's time, it didn't make sense. If somebody served as a soldier, it was the responsibility of of the military that he served under to meet and care for his needs. It's only logical. Nobody serves as a soldier at their own expense. And then he goes on to say, look at the, look at the next analogy he gives. Right? He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? He says, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? And so he gives this, this analogy that, that tells us that the farmer has, has a right to the fruit. I want you to think about what a, what a farmer does, whereas a soldier maybe... They, they go and they fight and they defend and they go on behalf of the country or the kingdom that they're responsible for. The farmer, what does he do? Well, first he tills the soil and makes sure it's fertile and, and ready for the seed that needs to be planted. He throws out the rocks and the weeds. He sows the seeds. He, he makes sure that it stays watered and that it has the opportunity to, to grow. We know only God gives the increase, but he does all the things to allow it to grow and then when it comes time, he harvests the fruit. And Paul's question is, who, who would do all of that without some expectation that they're going to get some of the fruit that is harvested, that they've worked so hard for? And so the soldier has a right to be paid. The farmer, he says, has a right to the fruit. And then he gives this example of the shepherd. And he says the shepherd has a right to the milk. And again, I want you to think about what a shepherd does. Right? A shepherd protects the sheep, cares for the sheep, makes sure that they're well and healthy, looks for things that might harm the sheep and keeps them away. And Paul says for all that work, all that time he spends with the sheep, he, he expects that he'll have some of the milk that, come, that comes from the sheep. And, and I want us to just stop for a second and just think about this because... I don't think it's for no reason that Paul chose these examples that he gives of a soldier, somebody who fights and defends and goes on behalf of a kingdom. He doesn't go with his own message. He, he doesn't go on his own behalf. He goes on behalf of the one who sent him and the farmer who toils and sows and waters and harvests and the shepherd who cares and protects and ensures health and guides it's not for no reason that as he's talking about how we ought to care and provide for our church leaders and elders that he gives these examples because what a picture what a picture of, of 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 what it means to to shepherd and to care for a church and so he gives these rights that we can all relate to none of us would look at any of these scenarios and say that any of these people has no right to be paid for the work and has no right to hope that they would be paid. Who would do these things? Who, who would go and be a soldier on his own dime? Who, who would be a farmer who never expects, who does all of that work and never expects to reap any of the fruit? And who would be a shepherd to sheep where there's never a reward of any of the milk? And so these are, these are rights that we can all relate to. This is, this is, it operates in a way that we understand. So 
they're, they're rights that Paul spells out as an apostle and, and that we've said translate to us as ministers of the gospel. They're, they're rights that we can all relate to, but they're also rights that are established by God. Look at what he goes on to say there. He says in verse 8, Do I say these things on human authority, or does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So God has established these rights. And Paul gives this example where he's established it in the care that we have for animals, right? He's saying like, well, even an animal, it's unreasonable to expect that they would, and this, this command that's given here where it says treads out the grain, it could either be with their feet or it could be uh, pulling a stone, but that, that an animal would work and work and work treading out this grain and never be able to stop and eat the grain that he's treading out. And, then, and, and God specifically commands and says, no, you can't do that. You can't muzzle an ox while he's treading out this grain. And so he's established this principle, but Paul takes it a step further. And I, and I think with good reason, I want you guys to, to look at this actually. I know I make you work a little bit harder and I'm sorry for that. But, but look at Deuteronomy chapter 25. Go ahead, and, go ahead and flip there. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. If you got a Bible, I'll give you a second. It's in the front. Uh, you don't have to flip very far. Deuteronomy chapter 25. So many instructions that are given in the books of Deuteronomy and even in Leviticus for how God's people ought to live, what that ought to look like. And Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4 says exactly what Paul quoted. I mean, it, like if you, once you find it, you'll see that it is literally verbatim what Paul says. You shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. However, if you look above it, if you look below it, and maybe even in some of your translations, there's a lot of space there. There's a, that, that, that sentence is on a line by yourself. It is that way in my translation. You, so I started looking at, I started looking at what, what's above and below it. I wanted to understand how to teach this as best as I possibly could. And then I was reading all that, and then I, and I started looking at the chapter before and the chapter after. You know what I found? And you can find it for yourself. It's right there. That is the only sentence in all of those chapters that has anything to do with an animal. In fact, if you read every bit of context that's right there in chapter 24, 25, 26, it's all about how we ought to deal with other people. There are instructions on marriage. There are instructions on divorce. There's instructions on making promises to other people and giving loans to other believers. There's instructions on how we ought to leave margin in our fields. And if we leave something when we, uh, when we harvest, we just leave it there so that the, 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 the sojourner, the foreigner, or, or the orphan, or the widow can come and they can be benefited from that. How we ought to do justice to those people instead of deprive them of justice how we ought to care for one another, how we ought to love one another. And then you get this instruction about not muzzling an ox when it treads out the grain. And so it doesn't surprise me that Paul's next thought, what is it right there? In, 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 and you, you guys got to work with me, so keep your finger there so we can go back. Look, what is this next thought? You shall not muzzle an ox. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And what does he say? Is it for oxen that God is concerned? And I think having looked at that, where it comes from in Deuteronomy, we can unequivocally answer that question and say, no, it's not for oxen that God is concerned. 
he's establishing a principle about how we understand work, right? That, that as we work, there's an expectation that we receive a reward for that work. And, and, and he says that in the form of not muzzling the oxen so that it can eat as it works, but the principle holds true. We have a right to work, all of us do, and we have an expectation that we would be paid for that work. That's just normal. It's just part of how life works, how God has established it. So he's established it and given us an example in the care for animals, but he's also established it in the provisions for the priests. That's Paul's next example there. He says it down in, uh, in verse 13. He says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Right? We, we know from an Old Testament perspective that the priests who served in the temple in, in all the commands that are given, there are offerings that they were able to take a portion of. There were some that they weren't, but there were offerings that were brought that they were able to take a portion of and that, that helped to feed their, their families. It helped to care for their livelihood. And so Paul is saying, even, even in the law, this is established that this is how God's workers, his people that care for his people, ought to be cared for. And you know what I, I found, and I, I want to share it with you guys, and maybe this is the last time I'll make you work for it. Um, I want you to take a look at Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 31. If you don't know where that is, it's right after First Chronicles. I'm just kidding. It's 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, chapter 31. Then I'll make a joke, and i got a brand new Bible, and I'm going to struggle to find it. There we go. Uh, 2 Chronicles 31, because this gives us, it gives us such a beautiful picture of how God intended for this to be. Like I said, it's, it's prescribed throughout all the law how these things ought to happen. But if you guys remember from our time in studying uh, first and second kings and studying other stuff in the old testament time and time again god's people would fall away from the things that had been commanded of them and that's what's happened right before this in second chronicles 31 right before this the, the leaders that had been raised up had no care for the things of god they had no care for the commands of god and so the temple the priests all of it had fallen into disrepair and then hezekiah comes into authority and he's not like that. He cares for what God's commands are. And so his first act is to start to rebuild the things that uh, had been neglected. In, in uh, 2 Chronicles 31 and in verse 2, it says, And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, division by division, according, each according to his service, the priests and the Levites, for burnt offerings and peace offerings to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord and to give thanks and praise and the contribution of the king from his own expenses was for the burnt offerings. And the burnt offerings of morning and evening, and the burnt offerings of the Sabbath, the new moon, the appointed feast, as it was written in the law of the Lord. So he reestablishes everything that God has commanded, does it at his own expense. And then look at the next action. And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due. Not, not he made a new command, but he, gave, he commanded them to give the portion that was due to the priests and the Levites, and look at why he did it, that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. So he says, this isn't right. 
We, we ought to be giving what is due to the priests and the Levites so that they might fully dedicate themselves to the study and the law of the Lord and the teaching and the ministering in the temples. And look at their response. As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, and honey. Now, I do want you to notice there that as they come to give, they don't give just their leftovers. They didn't bring just their like beanie weenies like we were doing a food pantry or something. They, they brought the best things that they had. Their grain, their wine, their oil, their honey, all the produce of their field. And they brought it in abundantly, the tithe of everything. I love those two words, abundantly and everything. There wasn't anything that they resisted tithing on. And the people of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of cattle and sheep and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God, and they laid them in heaps. And in the third month, they began to pile up the heaps, and they finished them in the seventh month. And then this is the last thing I want us to see here. When Hezekiah and the priests came and saw the heaps, what they do? They blessed the Lord and his people Israel. Not only is this the natural order that God has established for the provision of the priests in the Old Testament, for the workers in the church now in our day and age, but when God's people give and they care for the people of the church, the leaders in their church, it's a blessing to the Lord. It says these things have value. It says these things matter. It tells the watching world about who our God is. And so, and, and it's a blessing to him. That's what it says. So it's established in the care of animals, established in the provision for the priests. It's established in the natural order of life and how we work. I alluded to this earlier. Paul says it there in verse 11. He says, if we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things? This is how life works works. I mean, I know this isn't news to you guys, but, you know, and maybe not many of us are farmers, but if you farm, you do it expecting a share of the crop. If you work in washing dishes, you expect at the end of washing all those dishes that you're going to get a paycheck, right? Like, you wouldn't stand there and do that if there wasn't an expectation that you would get a paycheck. If you sit at a computer and answer emails and talk on phone calls, which sometimes can be uh, aggravating in and of itself. You do that with the expectation that at the end of the work, you get paid. And Paul says, if I've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if I reap material things? And not only that, but he goes on and uh, on in verse 14 and says it even more explicitly. He says, in the same way the Lord commanded, so now it's even more clear, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul has laid out this entire argument where he, he looks at it in such a straightforward way and he says, without a doubt, without a doubt, we have these rights. That was the first one we looked at. We, we have these rights. And, and they're rights that we all understand. And, and not only that, they're rights that God has established. And so he makes this unequivocal argument up until this point, that absolutely the apostles, the, the leaders, the elders in the church, the ministers in the church deserve to be paid for the work that they do. It is clear God has commanded it. And if we were teaching anywhere else and we were teaching 
topically on this topic, we would probably just stop right here. But that's not, that would really miss the point of what Paul is trying to say. And I don't want you guys to miss it because I said this has everything to do with what he says in chapter 8. And so he's, he's laid out this unequivocal argument that, that, you, that you cannot deny that he should be paid for the work that he's doing. And what does he say? Let's look at it. He says it in two different places. He says in verse 12, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. And then he says in, again in 15, But I have made no use of any of these rights. So these things are guaranteed rights, and yet they're rights that Paul has chosen to lay down so that he could do a number of things that I want us to look at. And they're going to sound really familiar. If you were here last week, they're going to sound a lot like my last four points from last week. In fact, we can just go ahead and look at them. He chose to lay this down so that he could love others more than himself, so that he could put others' needs above his own, so that he could show his awareness of the things that would be stumbling blocks for others. And ultimately, so he could show his willingness to lay anything down for the cause of Christ. That sounds a lot like what I told you guys we were being commanded to do last week, right? I mean, it sounds exactly like it because it's it's the exact same four points. And this is why I want you to see how these are connected because Paul goes from this instruction that we saw in chapter 8 where he is, where he is telling us, and we talk, spent time talking about last week. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to last week's message, because we unpacked that there are things that are absolutely rights, freedoms for us that are guaranteed by God, and yet he puts this proposition to us that there might be a case where it's better for you to not have that, to not take advantage of that freedom, to not take advantage of that liberty, so that you're not a hindrance to the gospel. And then he comes and gives this entire passage where he lays out unequivocally, without a doubt, his right to be paid for the work that he's doing. And what does he say? I've given that up. I know it's my right, but I've laid it down. And in every place that Paul goes, we see him making tents, right, to to sustain himself so that he can minister and so that he can share the gospel. And what, what, so what is Paul saying? He's saying what he tells us elsewhere. He's, he's saying... If you have a question about whether it's right or not to lay down a liberty for the sake of the gospel, then you can look at me, and I can be your example. What he tells us elsewhere is, you can imitate me as I'm imitating Christ. And so he gives us this clear picture whereby he's saying, yes, it is okay to be guaranteed a right and yet to forsake it so that the gospel might go forward. I just want, to, I, I want us to read back through that last section there. So we'll, we'll start in 12, and I, I just want us to, to, to sit with what, what Paul is saying, what the Lord is saying through him, and, and think about what that means for us. Nevertheless, he says, we've made no use of this right, but we endure anything, anything, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. 
Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? We read that already. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So he's very clear. That's what he's saying. And then he says again, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So not only have I made no use of these rights in coming to you, I'm not even telling you now, even in laying out this entire argument, I'm not hoping that you will give me anything. I'm not writing to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. And when he says that, he means for the opportunity to boast in the gospel. What an attitude. If we, think about, if we think about what we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians 8, and we think about what that means coming to life for more than just food offered to idols, and we laid out some of the examples of those last week, things in our own life that might be liberties that we have, but that might be liberties that are worth giving up for the sake of other people who are believers, for the sake of people who might believe, what, what a picture Paul gives us as he says, this is the story of my life. This is not what I'm telling you to do. This is what I've done in a real way that you can see that you know to be the truth because as I came to you, I provided for myself. I didn't ask anything from you, even though it was been given to me by God. It's a right I have, but I didn't ask for it so that I might not make any of you stumble. So there wouldn't be any barriers between us and the gospel. And so the question then becomes for us. I mean, as things go, I can't really think of a lot of things to lay down than, uh, that are more significant than the ability to be paid for the work that you do. But that's what Paul's saying. He laid down. He, he laid down the ability to be paid as a minister of the gospel so that it was not a barrier to the people that he was going to. So the question then becomes for us, what, what are the things? Maybe you started thinking about them last week as we were talking about it in 1 Corinthians 8. What are the things that are, that are a barrier, that are creating a stumbling block, that are making it hard for you to be the best brother and sister you can be to other believers as you seek to live and work alongside them, as you seek to encourage them? That's what 1 Corinthians 8 in the beginning says, and to build them up in love. What are the things that get in the way of that? What, what are the things that get in the way of you being the best gospel witness you can be in your home, in your family? What are the things in your life that are keeping you from being a gospel witness to the people that are around us, to our coworkers, to our neighbors? And then the question becomes, am I willing to lay those things down? Can I look at it like Paul has and count the cost and see, even though I'm guaranteed, I, I'm, it's been commanded by God that you should support me in this work that I'm doing, I'm going to make a choice. That's what he says. I'm going to make a choice and I'm going I'm, I'm to support myself so that that does not create a barrier. What are the things that we can count the cost and we can look at it and we can say, you know what? This might be something that I'm allowed to do. It might be something I have the right to do. It might even be a good thing but maybe I need to lay it aside for the best things. Maybe I need to lay it aside so that I'm not creating a barrier to somebody hearing the gospel, 
to another brother and sister growing and being encouraged in their faith to being discipled. And maybe some, there's some of you guys here this morning that you've never trusted Christ. The, the barrier to the gospel is not an external barrier. The barrier to the gospel is an internal barrier. It's something that you haven't been willing to lay down to get past, whether it's your pride, whether it's your belief that you're somehow good enough, whether it's your dependence on other things, whether it's having to let go of things that you seem to like and enjoy for something that's better, whether it's a struggle to understand this salvation that we proclaim, that doesn't require anything of you, that's not dependent on you, that all you have to do is just believe and follow. And some of you guys have resisted believing that for so long because of things you're not willing to lay down. But Paul would say, all of it, and as the band comes, all of it is worth it. All of it. You can, you can lay down any of it, and what God has is better. If you're a believer, what God has as he ministers through your life, as you set these things aside, as you sacrifice things that you're entitled to, what God has through that gospel message that you would share, through that encouragement that you would bring to a brother and sister, is worth so much more than the thing that we would lay down. And to those of you guys that are, that are not believers, that have never trusted Christ, the life that he has for you in Christ, in his kingdom, is so much better than anything that you have to give up, than so much better than anything that you have to lay down to follow him. But he gives you the choice. He gives you the choice to choose whether you would lay it down or not. In a minute, the band's going to play. You're, you're going to have time to deal with the Lord. He, he's been speaking to you. How will you respond? That's what we use this time for. And so I want you to do that. I will be here. If you need to make a decision, if you need to even just say, you know what, I'm a believer in Jesus and this is something that I need to lay down and I, I, just, want, I just want you to be praying for me. I just want you to know so you can follow up with me. That's part of what we do. I'll tell you that. That's part of what God has called us to do is to walk alongside you, encourage you, hold you accountable to the ways that you want to follow. I'll be here to receive you. If you want to join in fellowship with this place, if you want to surrender your life to Christ, I will be right here. But take some time and get alone and deal with the Lord. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that maybe on the outset, Lord, we couldn't even see how it might apply. And yet, you are the God who sees. Lord, in your word, it pierces us, Lord, to the very inner parts of our being. So God, even in this moment, Lord, as our lives are confronted by your word, would you help us to deal honestly with you? God, you see everything. There is nothing that we can hide from you. It's only a matter of whether we'll come to you and Lord, whether we'll be open about it, Lord, and whether we'll let you change us and transform us and use us in that moment. So God, help us to not leave this place without being honest and open with you, Lord. If there's somebody in this place that doesn't know you, that doesn't know the freedom to have sins forgiven, Lord, that doesn't know what it's like to be in a kingdom of darkness and be transported into a kingdom of light, 
Lord, the joy that it is to follow your son. Lord, would you help them to know that in this moment? Would you help them to cry out to you for forgiveness, to believe that you offer it freely because of the sacrifice of Jesus, Lord? And would you help them to be bold enough to come and to tell somebody about it? Lord, we love you and we thank you. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.